Einen, Morris Fabry, and me, Dalton Pataki. This is 88.3 WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Good night and go blue. Peter Frampton brings back memories. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. Jim, I think, will be here in a second or two, but in any event, uh, on we go. What a kind of interesting week. I hope you got to go outside last night and watch the lunar eclipse. I... Uh, Understand this is going to be the last sort of full blood, quote-unquote, blood lunar eclipse for 18 years. And I was watching it in West Park, and it was kind of interesting. About 9 o'clock, you could see that there were clouds moving across the sky, and the moon came out bright and beautiful for about four seconds, and then the clouds came back. But thank goodness at 9.57, 9.58, I made a note of some of these times. Uh, the clouds just disappeared. And it did turn into, a, by the naked eye, a fairly spectacular so-called blood lunar eclipse. Also, I think uh, some astronomers have called it a pumpkin eclipse. So it was a very interesting event. Of course, in the old days... Uh, People thought it was the end of the world. <laughs> We're past that stage, and I don't know if uh, Jim was watching that lunar eclipse, but I could have swore I saw the image of John Boehner pass before the Pope. <laughs> Actually, yeah, we did go out and sit in the backyard and uh, watch uh, the eclipse. It just sort of magically cleared up. It right? magically cleared up. 
right beforehand. Uh, all my uh, cursing uh, seemed to have paid off. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but it was interesting the way the moon did kind of flicker and change colors uh, if you watched it carefully. And alas, I don't have a telescope, but uh, well, we I'm had some binoculars, which oh. actually. Provide, yeah, more than uh, the naked eye, certainly, although not as good as a telescope. Uh, but yeah, yeah, a trifecta, uh, because it was a uh, lunar eclipse is a special event, the blood moon, yeah, and of course the super moon. So uh, it was quite exciting. Our youngest daughter, Nora, had never seen an eclipse before because here in Michigan they're often obscured by clouds, as Pink Floyd used to say. But uh, a nice uh, chance to see a little. Lunar history there, and uh, I think John Boehner will be a footnote to history. Um, the fact that uh, he's going to call his uh, chance uh, meeting with the Pope uh, the best day of his life uh, is clearly a personal note, not a professional one. Well, uh, I, found, I found some of his anecdotes maybe a little apocryphal. Uh, I'm sure that he says his prayers every day, but... Uh... He's obviously been mulling this over for a while. I think that there have been three or four events this summer that have frustrated him to some degree. And, of course, the revisionist uh, uh, comments that were made uh, after this, I, I think it was definitely a surprising announcement, uh, particularly in, in the wake of the fact that the Pope had just uh, addressed a joint you know, the day following the, the, the joint address to Congress by the Pope. I think that, you know, you go back in this over the summer, I think that three or four issues have kind of clarified for John Boehner uh, his frustration with uh, what's going on. But the idea that he's not been a conservative or given the conservatives their due uh, in these uh, votes is, is, is just absolutely ludicrous. Well, and again, it shows the complete... Uh, absence of uh, perspective and no concept of reality on um, behalf of these critics. I mean, I'm looking for my quote now and I can't find it, but they went to talk to people in Boehner's home district. Oh, yeah, I saw that. And the gentleman who says, oh, I voted for him time and time again, but he's no conservative. He's become more and more liberal as the years have gone on, and he just makes compromise after compromise with Obama. Well, Compromise is the very nature of legislative business. If you go to Congress expecting to never make a compromise, I don't know why you're, what you're doing. Uh, that's not how the system works. Uh, it's and in fact, it would be advisable, I think, for the, the first bill uh, for Congress to undertake is what I call remedial education in American <laughs> civics. Indeed. Um, the, the, the whole, uh, argument being made by this sort of strange Tea Party faction is, it's, it's fanciful. I mean, they keep talking about now we're going to start getting things done. Well, so, uh, first of all, <laughs> what, what has been getting done? Yeah. Nothing's been getting, nothing's done. been getting done. Right. And that's part of the frustration. And I think, you know, Boehner has an element uh, to his speakership history, where he's shown that he, as he puts it, I resigned for the good of the, quote, institution, unquote, a strange uh, comment on his part. But for instance, they've had over 50 votes on Obamacare. The problem is, is that the Senate is part of the United States Congress. And Mitch McConnell 
uh, used the filibuster time and time again um, during uh, the first couple of years of, of Obama's presidency. And he even openly said, I'm here to defeat the Obama agenda, as he puts it. And I think that, uh, you know, the Planned Parenthood, fetal tissue, uh, brouhaha, the export-import bank uh, situation, which uh, Jeb Henserling is, is holding up as a committee chairman, uh, what he, he says is, well, we don't actually want to vote. We want to just hold hearings and stall this out, is part of the, of, of the, of the conflict that's basically part of what's really going on here. And the Democrats, under Harry Reid, who's already announced that he's retiring at the end of his Senate term, he, he suffered a kind of a pretty bad uh, sports uh, accident several months ago. He's been wearing an eye patch, and, mm-hmm. uh, and he's, you know, getting up there in years. Uh, I think it was a weightlifting uh, mishap. Um, is basically says, hey, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. You guys did a lot of obstructing when we had almost 60 votes in the in the U.S. Senate. And in fact, they eventually even got to the 60 vote in the famous uh, filibuster cloture vote on Obamacare mm-hmm. when they wheeled uh, uh, Robert Byrd in on a gurney to pretty much cast the decisive cloture vote. Uh, all of this inside Congress stuff is is fascinating, but uh, the the title is Speaker of the House, and the problem that the, the Republican Party has had, uh, just uh, from an objective perspective, is that this is they see this as a that he's the leader of the caucus. Uh, all political parties have different quote leaders. But this, uh, you know, John Boehner at one point invoked the so-called Hastert rule that apparently never actually existed. And this was the the idea that somehow nothing can be brought forward unless a majority of the Republican caucus is in favor of it. Well, they have a job to do. They have to pass budgets. They they have to uh, keep the government uh, running, which apparently is their main objective. It's strange to, to see somebody like Lindsey Graham, not strange, but it's interesting that he would comment about Ted Cruz. I don't know what he's trying to accomplish. <laughs> Does anybody know? Indeed. Um, so I think Boehner, I think that one of his constituents put it best. He said, I think he just, he's tired. <laughs> I think he just got fed up with the, you know, he's spending all of his time kind of dealing with a daycare center situation. <laughs> Well, when you're putting out fires all the time, as the uh, firefighters in California know, uh, it uh, it takes its toll. Herding cats. I think that was one of his yes. famous lines. That is H-E-R-D, not H-U-R-T. <laughs> That's probably more the Ted Cruz agenda. But, uh, I mean, the extent to which Boehner has been denounced by his own compatriots has probably got to hurt, personally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're no conservative. You're no true friend of the fetus. Uh, he's been outspoken on abortion for his entire career, uh, and yet he's not right-wing enough for today's Republican Party, uh, such as it is. I mean, he knew going into the attempted government shutdown that it wasn't going to work, but his hands were tied by the cats. 
the cats and why instead of having another debate about another government shutdown over the Planned Parenthood brouhaha, which I, I say is basically a, a, an example of uh, forgery and typical American political history in which fraud and forgery are used to develop policy. Uh, of course, the most recent conspicuous example is the uh, Iraqi intelligence that was misused by the Bush administration to send us into Iraq. Another famous example, the Gulf of Tonkin. Oh, remember the Maine? <laughs> Apparently it's turned out that was... Uh, An internal explosion. Yeah, so uh, fraud and forgery have been involved in, uh, unfortunately, many policy disasters for the United States. You know, as for the actual facts about fetal tissue, and of course fetal tissue sounds sort of grotesque, but I don't know why it's any more grotesque than uh, Ronald Reagan's colon. <laughs> uh, what exactly became of that tissue? It's being cloned in a super lab. Soon an army of Reagans will rise up from Marco Rubio's earwax. And of course, you know, what it's used for factually is, uh, is research, medical research. And just a quote from a science... Uh, Times article from July 28th when these uh, videos first, quote, emerged. Um, Denise Gray and Nicholas uh, St. Flora Wright, scientists at major universities and government labs, have quietly been using fetal tissue for decades. They say it is an invaluable tool for certain types of research, including the study of eye diseases, diabetes, and muscular dystrophy. They, by the way, go into all sorts of other approaches where fetal tissue is uh, being used in research, including studies involving leukemia, Hodgkin's lymphoma, and Parkinson's disease. Uh, this is called medical science. <laughs> uh, they then, of course, actually detail some of the corporations that are involved in this. It is, quote, against the law, Federal law says that uh, these firms cannot profit from uh, the Planned Parenthood, cannot profit from the tissue itself, but the law does not specify how much they can charge for, quote, processing and shipping. So if we're going to have a, quote, investigation in all of this, let's have it. <laughs> let's see where this uh, profit is being made. Um, there are organ donation corporations that profit from this sort of industry. And it's important to realize that this fetal tissue is only donated with the permission, the written permission of the women that are getting these mm -hmm. abortions. This is not some sort of ghoulish backroom harvest facility. Yeah, this is not like some of the stuff you saw in the movies uh, and and in, by the way, there's a global, a rampant global trade in organ uh, procurement using illegal mm -hmm. means. Uh, many poor people in uh, third world countries are selling their kidneys or eyes. And um, maybe there's it's appropriate that there be a bigger um, examination of the entire issue. Uh, are the I'm not sure uh, America's grown up enough to have a serious argument about this topic. Yeah, I mean, you know, because 
you hear the word fetal tissue and you're kind of, huh? Well, what is that? Well, <laughs> people with uh, some sort of science background have a have a very good idea about this. It's interesting. They specifically note that a major supplier of feeder tish, tissue, Advanced Bioscience Resources, or ABR, is a nonprofit that has 12 employees and recent sales of about $1.4 million, according to a Dun Bradstreet report. A 2013 price sheet listed charges of $300 for a specimen for tissue from a second trimester fetus and 515 if the fetus was first trimester. Hmm. I wonder how those prices compare to some of the uh, ugly price gouging going on in the pharmaceutical industry. Hmm. So if we're going to have a public debate about what this actually is, because there is an unwillingness, I'm afraid, in America to sometimes confront reality, uh, these things become metaphors, uh, propaganda, that sort of thing. Well, and talk about the reluctance in America to discuss the uh, the, the big issue and, and another big money issue. Uh, this is a paragraph, uh, the end, tail end of a paragraph, half, halfway through the lead in uh, front page story in today's New York Times. The headline is, Boehner's move deepens a Republican chasm. It's by David Hershenhorn and Jonathan Martin. And uh, this nice piece of prose emerges. A new class of billionaire donor who can contribute unlimited amounts of money to support a candidate has undercut the power and relevance of the national party. Ta-da! Yeah. So there you go, Republican schemers who thought that Oh, this, you know, Citizens United is the way to go. Uh, all the money will, will flow right to where we want it to go. The craziest of the crazies are getting some of this money. The unelectable and the entire uh, future of the Republican Party is further compromised. So this is perhaps a blessing for those in the uh, rational world. Uh, but uh, what a what an outcome. <laughs> what an outcome. And, of course, one recipient of a lot of the super PAC money, of course, was Scott Walker. Uh, Loser. The Scott Walker eclipse happened last Monday. <laughs> and, of course, it's amusing to actually read a, a headline from just two months ago. It says, Walker viewed as, quote, authentic, now begins for, quote, smart, as his 2016 campaign begins. Hmm. Authentic, becoming smart. Uh, well, one of the guys who used to work for Scott Walker is recently saying that uh, a lurch to the right is suicidal for the Republican Party. Um, hmm. Yes, he might have given Scott Walker that, that news. But uh, uh, the guy also went on to, to call Ted Cruz, and this is quite funny, a 45-state loss prospect in a general election. <laughs> I think that's being generous to Ted Cruz. Well, I think he's a 49-state loss. It would be nice to believe that, but uh, I'm afraid there are uh, <clears throat> many more uh, red states in the bag for the Republican, no matter who they nominate. Uh, let's remember that the entire Confederacy these days votes Republican. And as for the success, by the way, of these uh, 
sort of non-compromising Republicans. I think there should be a little more focus on the actual budget results from the state of Kansas Mm. and the state of Louisiana, uh, where Bobby Jindal remains in the race at 0% with, uh, as I noted last week, two asterisks, not one. (laughs) I think he's gone up. In the polls by by one asterisk <laughs> of one asterisk. Um, of course, interesting today, by the way, uh, to hear a big announcement from Royal Dutch Shell that they are abandoning um, oil drilling in the Chuchiki. And that's always been a tongue twister of a geographical area to pronounce off Alaska's northwest coast. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about this is you will probably hear uh, from the propaganda Madison Avenue K Street crowd that this had something to do with the Obama administration. In fact, the exploratory wells proved to be somewhat uh, disappointing. And given the uh, perilous uh, nature of these rough seas northwest of Alaska, you know, way up there in the Arctic. It's pretty choppy. Um Tough. Anyway, uh, just uh, a month ago, the Obama administration announced on Monday that it issued a final permit for Shell to start drilling for oil and gas in the Arctic Ocean. The Interior Department gave conditional approval in May for the company's long-delayed application to drill in the untouched waters of the Chukchiki Sea. That is tough to pronounce. Chuck G. C. In July, the administration issued a permit that would allow Shell to start drilling at the top of the seabed, but would not allow the drill to penetrate into the oil reserves until the company had, quote, quick access to a capping stack. Well, Royal Dutch Shell spent billions of dollars trying to get these permits and whatnot, but uh, apparently they've struck a dry hole. <laughs> relatively speaking, and they don't think that the uh, resources are there to continue uh, with this risky and somewhat foolish proposition from the beginning. The permit was issued. These are the results. Um, Of course, Donald Trump came out uh, emphatically this past week and says, I don't believe in global warming and China isn't doing anything. (laughs) <laughs> on the issue. Uh, well, facts suggest otherwise. Yeah, the facts are such that uh, if we don't take uh, better measures towards uh, working to prevent uh, climate shift and global warming, uh, currently, uh, according to an article again in today's papers, um, the pledges that have been uh, made by countries to reduce the warming of the planet Uh, at century's end by about 6.3 degrees. If the national commitments are fully honored uh, from an expected 8.1 degrees, if emissions continue on their present course. So it's a known fact that it's going to get warmer no matter what. Uh, If we do something to help it out, it's not going to get as warm by as great a factor. But, uh, well, I mean, look at who are the three... (laughs) Republican frontrunners right now, none of them have elected experience. Yeah. Uh, Trump, Part. Carson, and Fiorini. Fiorini which is remarkable because 
barely well, has experience of any kind. She's been maybe a little clearer in the debates than the rest of the carnival show, but uh, her credentials as a CEO are even debatable, uh, and that will probably be her ultimate undoing. Uh, it's interesting, of course, this past week with all of the discussions going on that uh, <clears throat> Yogi Berra passed away. The great uh, sage of baseball. Well, he was an interesting character. Even if you hated the Yankees, you had to like Yogi Berra. But one of his famous lines was, nobody goes to those that restaurant anymore. It's too crowded. Well, too crowded is at the heart of many of the of the issues that were percolating all last week, in, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Yet nobody talked about the, the fundamental facts. And, of course, one of the reasons that global warming is, or climate change is such a... Uh, problem along with human migration. The Pope, of course, gave a speech in which he talked about the sanctity of human life and whatnot. Uh, He's a theologian. We'll say that he gave an interesting speech that uh, probably uh, angered conservatives way more than Democrats. It would be fascinating to be able to read John Boehner's mind. I'm curious, of course, he he was known to be kind of a weeper, Mm -hmm. weeper of the house. Uh, he was very emotional about the Pope. He was. And you wonder if listening to the Pope actually gave him the epiphany. You know what? He talked about the golden rule. I, I'm done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm doing it tomorrow. And that the prayer and, and the, the story of the Pope uh, grabbing Boehner by the sleeve and telling him, pray for me where the Pope told Boehner to pray for him. Boehner, mm-hmm. of course, was a Catholic, raised as a Catholic and all that. Uh, so you wonder uh, if, if that actually was the decisive uh, factor, the so-called straw that broke the camel's back. We don't know. But what we do know, and by the way, I only mention this because of the human migration uh, debate last week that continues to uh, go on globally. Uh, of course, we know... Millions of people are fleeing warfare all over the globe, uh, warfare that the United States, unfortunately, plays an amazing uh, role in, uh, not only with uh, disastrous foreign policy decisions that have been made over the last 30, 40 years, but all of the arms sales that go on. Mm. Uh, I'm kind of curious if the new conservative speaker of the House, probably uh, Kevin McCarthy, We'll investigate uh, the arms sales that are going on in the United States. But let's remember when the uh, charter regarding U.N. refugees was written back in 1951, there were approximately two and a half billion people on the planet. By uh, the year 2000, that number had gone up to 6.2 billion. And we are now looking at roughly 7, 7 billion people. So we are talking about literally a tripling of human population um, literally in the last two to three generations. Now, most of this population increase, of course, has occurred in developing countries, quote-unquote. But this is part of the global warming climate change issue. It's part of the economic justice issue, too, because if you know your medieval history, you'll know that the lives of workers, peasants and serfs and so forth, changed dramatically if they survived the bubonic plague and the the destruction of one third of Europe's population. Suddenly, labor had value. Yeah. Um, We now live in a world where... (sighs) 
labor's value is diminished, not because of any intrinsic factor about labor itself, but just because there's any number of people who will do it for less. And let's remember that, you know, there are five billion people that aren't on Facebook. Uh, yeah. they, don't, they don't have electricity in many areas. And it's uh, almost amazing that this sort of obscure fact of population growth in on the globe is not more of the discussion. You know, we, we've seen, of course, some of the Eastern European countries in which there were tremendous uh, migration issues involved with World War II. It is beyond dispute that there was numerous... Uh, Numerous policies pursued by the Nazis and, of course, by Stalin after World War II even ended of ethnic cleansing and the movement of millions of people, many of whom died uh, in the process. Some of this was punitive uh, ethnic cleansing on Stalin's part because three million Russian POWs perished under German custody. Uh, that doesn't justify what Stalin did, but these f things happened. So in the aftermath of World War II, a refugee policy adopted by the United Nations seemed to make a lot of sense. The problem today, of course, is that in some of these European countries where they're having uh, robust uh, debates about what to do going forward, um, some countries need more people and some don't. And leaving aside all of the cultural uh, issues and pseudo-racial aspects of the debate, the facts are, of course, that most of the refugees are fleeing from Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Eritrea, Libya. Sudan. Sudan and other areas in sub-Sahara sub Africa. I'd like to thank Andrew for engineering this evening here on Gray Matters. Uh, you are listening to WCBN-FM and Arbor Yazoo City Calling will be coming up shortly on this fine station. Stay tuned. Reverend Gary Davis in the background on the banjo doing Devil's Dream, telling you it's time for Yazoo City Calling here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name's Jerry Mack, your host this evening for an hour-long excursion into the land of Delta Blues and early urban blues, performed and lived by the men and women who started it all. Every Monday evening at this time, we pay tribute to the Robert Johnson era folks who uh, never got much due when they recorded this stuff back in the 20s, 30s, 40s. Reverend Gary Davis, part of that uh, scene in the mid-30s, some of his earliest recordings. These recordings were done in 1964 and uh, supervised by Samuel Charters, great author of uh, Deep Blues. Anyway, 
Summer seems to be over. We're in a cool, cloudy evening, but it's Monday, and hopefully some of the blues we're playing for you this evening will keep you warm, or at least keep you alert on a Monday evening. <laughs> 